you can be opening up your Bibles to the beginning of the book of Hebrews. We're going to be studying from there together here in just a moment. clicker is working. Here we go. I changed my mind. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to be able to worship with you, to be able to study with you, to be with you. We were gone last week uh, down in Florida at the Florida College Lectures where I actually spoke uh, earlier this week. I want to share with you a timeline of what that looked like, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. On May the 3rd of last year, 2023, May the 3rd, 2023, I got an email inviting me to speak at the Florida College Lectures. And in that email, there were two other dates given. The first was August the 15th. On August the 15th, I was to take my topic that I was given, the passage that I was given to to give my lecture on. And on August the 15th, I had to turn in for publication a manuscript from 10 to 20 pages long. And I hadn't written anything since college, and I tried my best to go in that exercise with a great attitude. And I said to myself, maybe after writing all of these pages, I'll find out I enjoyed that. And maybe I'd do more of that kind of thing. But when I got to the end of that process, I found out I continue to not like doing that and hopefully won't have to do that ever again. The second date was this past Tuesday, February the 6th, when I gave that lecture. So if you're doing the math, I had nine months to study and to work on and to develop and to meditate about and to put together an outline and manuscript from the passage in Hebrews that I was given. And if you are thinking that after doing all of that study and work and time and effort for nine months to only present one lesson out of that passage, you are sorely mistaken. Not one, but two lessons at least out of there. It is a powerful passage in the book of Hebrews that we're going to be looking at. Really, the book of Hebrews itself is super applicable to us, and sometimes we miss that. Because the way that the book is set up, it's easy for us to read it and to think so much as pertains to the Jewish brethren that this book was written to. It's very specific to them about their, their religion and their law and the way that they thought and the way that they operated that sometimes we can read a book like that and come away with the idea that, listen, I, I'm not a Jew. I've not worshipped that way. I've not thought that way. And then we miss the practicality that's there. Let me give you the practical point about the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew writer is writing to a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, yes, but a group of Christians that are battling temptation and they are battling the urge to leave Jesus and go back towards Judaism. And the Hebrew writer spends the length of that book of painting the picture that leaving Jesus and going back to anything is absolutely ridiculous to do that. 
Now, for them, it was Judaism. And that's how the book is structured. But for us, it's fill in the blank. If we are here this morning, and you are fighting temptation, or you have stepped away from Jesus and headed in the direction of whatever it is, what a ridiculously foolish decision that you've made. Because Jesus is far greater than fill in the blank. And that's how the book really opens. Look to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4. The very outset of this book. As he begins the whole diatribe, if you will, of what he's going to give us. And he gives us here in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4. At the outset, and speaking about angels, the first point that he's going to make is that Jesus is far greater than angels, speaking specifically about his deity, because he is God, he is far greater. But he begins with this phrase that I like. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, having become so much better. You see that phrase there? I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you use another version such as the ESV, you're going to see a word like superior, which is a word that I like. The New Living Translation will give us the sun is far greater. And it is that idea that carries the weight throughout the book. And so at this very beginning section, you have the point that Jesus is far greater because of his deity, because he is God. And in the passage that we're going to spend our time in this morning in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, what will come to the forefront is the fact that Jesus lived as a man, suffered and died. His humanity is what makes him far greater. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning arguing the fact that Jesus lived on this earth as a man. I believe it to be an inarguable point. Well, we see it really throughout Scripture. John will begin his gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 1 in telling us that the Word was with God and the Word was God. That happened even in the beginning. And then in chapter 14, he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John will continue to say in 1 John chapter 1, as he writes his first epistle there, that Jesus lived on this earth as a man and that John physically dealt with him. John says that I saw him and listened to him. I touched him. I handled him. I physically was aware of who he is, and the things that he had going on. You study through the Gospels, you see that Jesus was born into the world, that he physically grew, that he got hungry, that he got thirsty, that he got tired, that he got weary, he was sorrowful, he was troubled, he wept, he felt joy, he felt love, he felt compassion over and over. He died, all human things. He had the ability to choose one of the greatest human characteristics that there are. You see, Jesus lived on this earth as a man. But yet on this earth, he suffered and he died. And in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 5, 
Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 5, you have this picture that because of Jesus' humanity is far greater. And what I love about this section of the book of Hebrews, and where we're going to spend the most of our time at the end of this text, is that the Hebrew writer doesn't just give us the point. He could do that. Jesus is far greater because of his humanity, and then move on to something else. What's so great and helpful to us even today is that he will make the point, Jesus is human, so he is far greater, but he tells us why. What difference does that make? What's the benefit? What's the blessing that comes from that? What's the practicality of that? How is that applicable to the way that I live and operate? So what for me? Jesus lived... He suffered and died. How does that make a difference in my life? And the Hebrew writer shares some things on how it makes a difference. We'll spend most of our time there. Let's start at the beginning. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let's read this text together. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. He says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now... We do not yet see all things put under him. I want to hold there just for a second. I want us to think beginning back to the very outset of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world, he creates everything that we see and everything that we interact with. And in the midst of his creation, towards the end, he creates man. And what he does in Genesis chapter 1, in verses 26 through 30, is he gives incredible privileges to man when it comes to his creation. He puts creation in subjection to man. He puts it under man, and he puts man at the top, at the head. And what is interesting to think, and when we read passages like Psalm 8 that Gary read for us just a moment ago, that the Hebrew writer quotes from here in verses 6, 7, and 8, quoting directly from Psalm 8, is the incredible psalm of praise that David shares in making the simple point, Who is man? We are a small piece of the overwhelming vastness of creation. But in the overwhelming vastness of creation, look at the incredible blessings that God gave to man. Who is man that we are crowned with glory and honor? The greatest of all men to walk on this earth, Jesus so what the Hebrew writer does is he takes Psalm 8, an incredible psalm of praise, and, and makes it and turns it into a messianic psalm. And when we think about the idea that all of these advantages were given to man, the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 states the obvious situation that man has messed all of that up. Did you take notice there at the end of verse 8? 
where he says that he put all in subjection under him, but at the end of that text, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. This is what we see now. As man has rebelled against God, sin enters in the world, man has messed it all up. And now here at the end of verse 8, we find ourselves in an incredibly sad place. But verse 9, you have this ray of sunshine, Jesus. Look at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. An incredible statement. You have all of these advantages, all of these blessings that were given to man, that man takes and throws away and messes all up. But now Jesus comes on the scene and lives as a man and fixes what man has messed up. What an incredible thing to think about what Jesus has done. But yet, notice, he did that through the suffering and death that happens as a man. Hold your finger here in Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to look back to a passage that probably a lot of you would be familiar with, but in the context of our conversation, I want you to read it with me. In Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul says to the brethren about Jesus and about his life and think about how that fits into our conversation this morning. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 5, listen to what what Paul says. He says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so when Paul is writing about this point of Jesus' existence, the point that he leaves heaven, as God, as deity, and he comes to earth and he lives in the likeness of a man. But on this earth, the key component to the point of death, and it's the point the Hebrew writer is making, that Jesus came to this earth, lived as a man, suffered and died. And for us, as we think about man itself, it seems as if, suffering and death would be against what's good for man. But what's interesting is that happening to Jesus was the greatest thing that ever happened to man. We think suffering and death, bad. That's bad for man. But ultimately, it was the greatest thing to ever happen. And so here in this text, The point is made that Jesus came to this earth, he lived, he suffered, he died as a man. So what difference then does that make for us? And that's the rest of the text. Look beginning now in verse 10. He says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, 
to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, I want us to understand from this passage the reality that God wants to have a relationship with us. That's what he wants. He wants to have a relationship with man. Now, sin is the problem, and so he has to take care of that problem. He does so through Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. But man, or God wants to have a relationship with us. And so you have these incredible passages. Verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I want you to pause just for a second. I want you to think about the magnitude of a statement like that. Where Jesus looks to man, all of us included, and shares a statement such as that. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. The closeness of the relationship comes out in the words that are being used in this text. Two Old Testament quotes are given to us. One in verse 12 from Psalm 22, a messianic psalm in which Christ refers to the church as his brethren. A second quote in verse 13 from Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah is referencing the naming of his children, drawing attention to God seeing us as his children. So you have this idea of words like brethren and words like children being used that indicate the kind of relationship that we can now have with God. It is an acquaintance. It isn't someone that I know. It isn't someone that I have met long ago. It is brothers. It is brethren. It is children. The closest of relationships. That's what Jesus, living as a man, suffering and dying on the cross, has allowed us to have that level of relationship with God. It is unbelievable to think about that. That's the kind of relationship that he wants. Hold your finger in Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go somewhere else. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Again, this very similar kind of thing is said for us in a little bit different way, but the same sentiment is there. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Listen to hear how the Apostle Paul gives us this idea. He says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And so you have this incredible picture that Paul says, that God sent forth his son to live as a man. Did you notice? Born of a woman. He makes that point. And the reason that he did that is so that we can be reconciled to him, so that we can have a relationship with him. But what kind of relationship? A passing relationship? A far away relationship? No. Being adopted as his son. 
So they were able to call him Abba Father. Close, intimate, personal relationship only made possible through the death of Jesus. Only happening in the fact that he came to this earth, suffered, and died. And so the Hebrew writer will go on in this text to point out other blessings that come. Let's read the end of this, 14 through 18. And I want you to be looking for those blessings, and then we'll go back and pinpoint a couple of them. Look back in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning now in verse 14. He says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Do you take notice of a few blessings that are there? Just point out a few. The first one he makes mention of is that because Jesus came to this earth and lived as a man, suffered and died, he has released us from the fear of death. That the fear of death should then no longer have its hands on us. That death itself for the Christian, for the one who has a relationship with Christ, needs not fear death. Look over the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. A powerful passage there that talks directly about this idea. In Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 31, listen to the words that are used. He says this about our relationship with God. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now listen to this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Paul, as he writes to the brethren in Rome, he reminds them that there is anything, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not even death. And the reason for that is, is death for the Christian is nothing to be feared I'll go one step further it's not just something to not fear but for the Christian 
It's something to be welcomed. And that is a step further. Think about the Apostle Paul and his attitude in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, he's, he's got that back and forth about death and life. And, and he's making the point, certainly showcasing the reality that he, he doesn't fear death. Not just that he doesn't fear death, he welcomes it. That if he were able to choose, he would choose death so that he can be with God. So his attitude most certainly is, I'm not fearful of death, I even welcome that. Now I want you to think about having that reality in your mind. Not just saying that, it's something to say and it's something easy to say. And I think for the Christian... We sometimes put it in our mind, and it's something I ought to say. But it's something more than just saying it and believing that. That I don't fear death. I welcome death because I'll be able to be with God. But having that attitude, having that belief, that reality in your mind, we see in Philippians chapter 1, it is what then allows Paul, to live in this life magnifying Christ in his body. He's able to do that because he doesn't fear death. He's not worried about those things. He's not anxious about those things that everyone else is anxious about. And because of that, I'm able to live in a way that Christ in my body will be magnified. And for us, we can do the same because Jesus scored the victory over death. And as we saw here specifically in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, that we are released from the fear of death. But it isn't just that. We're also told, specifically in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus is our merciful and our faithful high priest. He experienced all of the things that he experienced in life, both the good things and the painful, and that made him equipped to serve as our high priest. But what kind of high priest? A merciful one, a faithful one. The text tells us that because of that, serving as our high priest, he makes propitiation for our sins. He appeases God for us. He paid the price. He made the sacrifice. He spilt the blood so that we could be forgiven. He does all of that for us. Because of the life that he lived, it's put him and equipped him to be the high priest that he is for us. What an incredible blessing that is. And then finally, one final blessing that the Hebrew writer makes mention of is that because he lived, because he suffered, because he died, he is also equipped to help us face temptation. In Hebrews chapter 4, maybe just a page over in your Bibles, he talks about the fact that we, we don't have a high priest, verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, but yet without sin. You see, he's able to handle those temptations because Jesus understood what was at stake. And for him, what was at stake was all of us. 
And so he was able to battle temptations. And it isn't just those temptations that he faced from the devil in the wilderness. He faced temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation, the fullness of his life. But he understood what was at stake much more than he ever thought. Isn't that how temptation operates? Temptation oftentimes operates as the whisper to us that it's no big deal. No one gets hurt. No one will ever know. This doesn't bother anyone. This is a small thing. It will be so much fun. You will enjoy it so much. We hear those kinds of whispers, but we have to understand that just like Jesus... There is so much more at stake than what we sometimes think. And ultimately, what's at stake is our own soul. But this text tells us that Jesus, because of the life that he lived, gives us confidence, gives us assurance, gives us encouragement because he has been there before. Think about this story. We don't commonly use this story in talking about temptations, but for me it fits. The, 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 the picture of it fits in my mind. In Matthew chapter 14, the, the story goes that Jesus' apostles are out on a boat, the water and it is raging, the winds are blowing, and Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And it takes them a second, but they realize who it is, that it's Jesus walking to them out on the water. And in the face of the wind, in the face of the bad sea, he's just strolling, it seems, out on the water. And Peter talks to him, speaks to him, asks him a question. If it is you, ask for me to come out, command me to come out. And Jesus tells him to come. And Peter climbs out of that boat And in the face of the water, in the face of the wind, he walks out to Jesus. Because Jesus was there. But yet, as the story goes, Peter is distracted by the winds and by the waves, and he begins to sink. He loses focus. He's distracted by the things around him. And his focus on Jesus is broken. And as he begins to sink, you remember what he does in Matthew chapter 14? He cries out to Jesus for help. His focus, which was distracted and lost, goes back to Jesus. And he cries out for help. And what does Jesus do? Sorry, Peter. You had your shot. You were doing so well, but you lost your focus, and now, blah, 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 you're gone. Is that what he does? sink 
But yet there is Jesus who's been there before. He's lived the life that we've lived. He's faced temptations the way that we have faced temptations. And he is strong enough to cry out to for help that he will reach out his hand and he will pull us up. From our perspective, it is calling to him for help. And when we do, what will Jesus do? Well, this text tells us. He will reach out to help. How often? Every single time. So let's close with this thought. Why did Jesus leave heaven? Why did he leave heaven and come to earth and live as a man? You see all of these things unfold for us in Hebrews chapter 2. He did that because he loves us that much. That's why he did it. He did it because he wants to have a great relationship with us. He left heaven and came to earth and lived as a man so that he could die on earth and score victory over death. He did it, living as a man, coming to this earth so that we don't have to fear death. He did it so that he could be our high priest. He did it so that he could endure temptation, so that he would then be equipped to help us with our temptations. All of these incredible things. What an incredible blessing it is. All that we can do because of these incredible things is to praise God. So let's close with Psalm 8. Gary read for us from Psalm 8. Did you take notice this incredible psalm of praise began and ended with the exact same phrase? Did you notice that? The very first verse and the very last verse the very same thing, an incredible praise to God for the incredible blessings that he has given us. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen. Jesus did all of that. God did all of that for you and I. We read as we were commemorating his death surrounding the table this morning from Isaiah chapter 59. The sad reality about what sin does. Our iniquities separate us from God. He's light. In him there is no light. Hebrews chapter 2, we talked about this morning that he, he wants to have an incredible relationship with us. And we know that because of the sacrifice. sing the song of invitation that Mark is going to lead us in. It gives us an opportunity to think about our relationship. And much like the brethren who received this letter from the Hebrew writer, who were struggling with the temptation to walk away from Jesus. How ridiculous that really is. Let's think about that this morning. Maybe you've walked away from Jesus. Let's repent of the foolishness. Maybe a relationship with God has yet to begin because of your sin. Let's have that washed away this morning. Maybe we can help. If we can, you let us know as we stand.